Let me just say that I'm not Tom Simcox, and uh, he was supposed to come here today, and we want to ask you to keep praying for Tom. Uh, his health is still not 100% by any means, and I persuaded him not to come uh, when I heard that he was uh, having such challenging uh, challenges still, and uh, so you're stuck with me again. And so uh, let's uh, look to the Lord and look into His Word as we give Him praise that He is King and Lord of all, and uh, we need to have His truth uh, help paint the picture of what that looks like and think through the implications of that. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that You have ordained all things that have occurred this past week. We thank You that whether it is uh, tornadoes that have touched down and have literally uh, carved out a path of destruction, or whether it has been the, um, the reminder of seeing a wedding that reminds us, Lord, of the ultimate wedding someday that will take place, making our hearts yearn for that great feast of the Lamb someday, Lord, when you, our wonderful, almighty and absolutely righteous groom will come and you will bring to yourself your bride, finally made right, finally glorified. Lord, that day we look for with such anticipation. It will be far better than anything we've ever seen broadcast on TV. But Lord, as we wait, we need to continually be reminded of your truth, truth that is so needful for our souls is like food, Lord, for our souls. We pray that you might help us to find nourishment in your word this day as we look into your word and that we might know you and that we might indeed cherish and rejoice in the thought that we are known by you as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. story is told years ago of an older gentleman who was sitting on the train and as he's taking the commute, Back home, he notices it's a little girl, about five years of age, one of these little kids that is just having a great old time. Everyone else is sitting there quiet, minding their own business. She's running up and down the aisles. She's making friends with everyone. She's laughing. She's giggling, just having a wonderful time. And try as hard as he did, this man tried to figure out, he couldn't tell which of the passengers uh, was the person that this little girl belonged to. And she seemed able to talk freely with so many different people, went from one place to the next and just smiled and talked to them so uh, cheerfully. But then suddenly, the train whistle let out this great shriek. And about that time, the train roared into a pitch black dark tunnel. And so for a while, I couldn't tell what was going on. As you know, sometimes when you're on the subway, the lights actually dim as it goes through those tunnels in the city. And so it came out the other side, there's a little girl cuddled up in the lap of her mother. And obviously, uh, she found mom uh, when she was in panic and in fear. I wonder if it's not true that we find a common point of comparison that we have with this little girl, in that the general pattern that we have in our life is that we thoughtlessly go about in a carefree manner in life, we go busy here and doing that. When the sun is shining and all is well, we're just out doing our own thing, carrying on. But then when the deafening shriek of trouble is sounded, 
and we find ourselves in, involved in a fearful circumstance and we feel as though the whole world has become dark around us, do we throw, your, do we throw ourselves into the arms of God at that moment? Well, I'd like us to think about that because the Bible depicts life to be not one quiet, peaceful, scenic train ride. But in the pages of Scripture, we find example after example of fear-inducing shrieks or dark tunnels, if you will, or those even derailments, experiences that throw our world upside down. We also find recorded in the pages of God's Word the reactions of many people who have drawn close to God in the midst of those times of sufferings and those times of affliction. We think of Joseph in his comments in Genesis 50. We think of Paul, his comments of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and, verse, and also chapter 12. And Jeremiah, his reflections in, in the midst of all of the destruction in Jerusalem in Lamentations 3. And scores and scores of psalms that speak of God and turning to God in the midst of crisis and difficulty. And I'd like to ask you today to turn to Psalm 40. And I want us to consider the reflections of David as we look at the idea of in the midst of suffering being drawn to God and thinking through about the theme in Scripture that constantly is the great encouragement of those who have turned to God to re be reminded of the love of God displayed in the cross of Christ. It is the Son of God who suffered the greatest injustice, the darkest of all moments in time, also at that moment provided the greatest blessing to those who embrace the cross and the Christ of the cross. So we're going to look at Psalm 40 this morning and look at David as he goes through a dark tunnel, if you will, and feels in some ways a sense of desperation. We don't know the specific struggle that he faced, uh, but we can learn through his testimony that God indeed lifted him up. Chapter 40 of Psalm. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. 
My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. I assure you there is so much packed in this wonderful passage of Scripture. We will not in any way fully explore all that's contained here. I just want to briefly uh, look at some outlines of, and some reflections on what is happening here in the psalm and what David is helping us to see here. Clearly, he's facing a very serious time of struggle, a hopeless situation it appeared to be at the beginning. And then we find that God helps him. And there's a sense of encouragement, and he's, he is reflecting on how good God has been to him and shown so much of his grace to him. And then we notice the latter part of the, of, the, of the psalm ends up into a time of reflection as David then begins to think through, well, in light of all that God has done for him, now he's learning to trust God in the midst of another difficulty and another crisis that awaits him and that he's in the midst of at that time. So let's look at three things here. First thing I want us to notice is the beginning verses 1 through 5. We find the testimony of one whom God has lifted up. I wonder how you would describe a situation you have encountered in which you felt helpless and you felt desperate. How would you, what would you compare such an experience to? Well, David used, I believe, metaphorical language here as he describes in verse uh, 2 that he talks about a pit of destruction. I think in those kinds of terminology, he may have thought in his mind at some point that it's, he was acknowledging he wasn't sure he was going to survive the situation he was facing. He thought his life was going to be destroyed. In order to convey the level of his misery in the difficulty of whatever he was facing, he added an interesting descriptive phrase. Did you notice that also in verse 2? He talks about being in a miry clay. Now, it's bad enough to be in a pit, I would say, uh, to be in some hole in the ground, have steep walls and no means of finding your way out of escaping that kind of a, a pit. But worse yet is to be stuck in mud and muck and mire and mess in the bottom of the pit. You can hardly even stand up. Now, Jeremiah literally found himself in a pit with muck and mire in the bottom Interestingly enough, in chapter 38 of Jeremiah, we read these words. They took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern, which is like an old well, usually cut out in the big stone there, and the king's son, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern there was no water, but only mud. And Jeremiah, listen to this, sank into the mud. Ooh. What a descriptive phrase. 
Now, that, that is a literal experience that Jeremiah faced. I don't think that that's necessarily what's happening with David. He is using it in a metaphorical way. But think about what it would mean to be in a situation in which you were stuck in the muck. Can you identify with that? How depressing, how discouraging, how disgusting it would be. And David's situation was so bad, he said in his mind, he's thinking, I can get no lower than where I am right now. My life had gone from bad, now it's gone to worse. He had no one to turn to to help him except God. And he cried out to God from the pit of despair. He looked for deliverance from the muddy mess that he was in. Look at verse 1 as he talks about, I waited on the Lord. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation that you would describe in which you felt like you were cut off, you felt like you were hopeless, in a hopeless situation. And then indeed, there are many types of things I'm sure that we can go through in life, and maybe some of them are facing those now, or you've been through one not too long ago or years ago, in which you went through a type, different types of pits. You sank into that pit. And they're all different kinds. I think one of them, clearly, and one that's indicated here in this text specifically, is the pit of guilt and shame. It's overwhelming. David alludes to it, as he says in verse 12. He had all sorts of trials going on here, and there are many different facets of problems he had, but notice he clearly was struggling with a guilty conscience. And boy, was he down in the muck and mire of shame. Verse 12, my iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs on my head. Princess, I don't think David was ever described as being bald. Okay, so what, is that, what he's saying there is, my sins are beyond number. They're overwhelming to think of all the things I've done to offend God. And he says, my heart has failed me. He now is left with a sense of, you can just sense his desire to go on, his desire to, to want to do anything, his motivations is sort of just evaporated. I wonder if there aren't some among us here this morning who can identify with those kinds of feelings. We can identify with David. We know of the time in our life at a weak moment, a moment of weakness, we, our hearts became enticed by sin. We didn't set out at the beginning of that day saying, well, this is what I'm determined to do. It came in a moment when we really weren't thinking and plotting for it to happen, but the moment arose in which it seemed like a very enticing thing. And in that weakness, it set in motion a series of actions. And David knows what that's all about. And now, next thing you know, you're down in the pit. You're stuck in the muck and mire of shame. You never intended to get in this mess, but you find yourself there, and one sin has led to another, and to another, and to another. David reflected on this theme of being in the pit of destruction. His sins has destroyed his life. And instead of fulfilling his God-given responsibilities as king, which you read about in 2 Samuel chapter 11, you could go back and review this one more time. It is a very sad story of someone whose life was going such, in such a great direction and how in just a very quick amount of time he found himself in some serious, serious sin. 
David finds himself abdicating his duty to God, abdicating his responsibilities to those citizens of his nation Israel, and instead he's pursuing his own selfish and sinful desires. It can happen so quickly and so subtly to all of us. But my friend, what will help us out of that pit of shame? It is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is God's wondrous provision for people who are in that pit of guilt, who are stuck in the regrets of their past. And maybe those regrets are a long time ago. Maybe those regrets are yesterday. But my friend, I hope you'll see that David is writing this psalm as someone who has understood and who has experienced because he is looking ahead at the promises that God had given to him, especially in the promises of the new covenant, which we'll talk more about in a minute. David's reflected on the theme of God's forgiveness, not once or twice in the Psalms, but you read it numerous times as he realized he was in that pit, and it's the theme that God rescues and saves those of us who are sinners by his gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Think of Psalm 103. Just take a moment and turn over to Psalm 103. David wrote Psalm 40. He also wrote this psalm, Psalm 103, in which we find that him exclaiming with sheer delight in his soul, having been lifted up by the grace of God and the mercy of God shown to him. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, talking to himself, verse 2, and then verse 3 says, because why? He pardons not some, not most or many, but he pardons all your iniquities. And then he further reflects on that in his sense of amazement and wonder and celebration in what he found in the gospel. You'll notice in verses 10 through 12 that God has not dealt with us. And he links himself with others there in the community of faith. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, which cannot be found, my friend. If you go east this direction, as far as you can go, you go west, as far, I don't know which way I'm pointing, but anyway, go west in that direction as far as you want to go. You're never going to, those, those two points will never touch. If you go north and south, they'll eventually meet each other, right? If you go east and west, they never meet. And so what he's saying here is that he's saying, God has met me in my deepest pit of shame, in the muck and mire of my sin. He's lifted me out. There's forgiveness. There is the fact that there is someone who's paid for my sin, that I might be fully and freely forgiven. My friend, I wonder if you find yourself identifying with that being in that pit. Maybe there's another pit you identify with, and we're not going to be able to touch on all these, but perhaps you feel stuck in the pit of depression. Some of us may be discouraged, and we need to be lifted up out of the darkness and despair that seems to have just encompassed our perception and looking at all of life. And like David, we are in need of, to bring, we need to bring our defeats, our losses, perhaps our broken dreams the things that we thought were going to take place, but they haven't taken place, and the things we've longed for are still not there, we need to bring those and say, Lord, I'm going to patiently wait upon you. 
I'm going to trust you that you are wise, that you know what you're doing, and in due time that you will lift me up, lift me up to see that there's a perspective on my life that I've not been seeing, I've been missing it, because I've been looking at it from my perspective rather than your perspective. And God will raise you up, give you other tasks to do. He will have a plan that's far different than maybe your plan, a plan that he will see will bring him great glory and be ultimately for your good. Perhaps some of us are in the miry clay of suffering and affliction. It doesn't seem to ever go away. And some of us may be up to our knees in the mud of loneliness. And here's a bad one, self-pity. Self-pity. Oh, you don't know how bad I have it. And people who are stuck there, my friend, let me just encourage you, listen to what David is saying. Do you realize that's why he wrote these words? He wants you to know that God is the God who lifts up those who are in the pit. He wants you to get your eyes on God. He wants you to look to God, the God who graciously lifted him up out of the muck and mire and placed his feet on a firm, solid ground. And Just like that little girl on that carefree ride on a train until she heard the shriek of the whistle and then went into the dark tunnel i wonder if you ever stop to think that maybe the reason god has you in this pit is so that he can meet you there and that you will look to him and that you'll humble yourself and you'll begin to have a heart that's yearning toward him and that in those moments that you will turn to your heart and your mind toward him realizing that jesus was a man of sorrows he was acquainted with grief Jesus was forsaken and mistreated. His death on the cross brings hope because he has overcome the evil world system in which we live. You say, well, some of you are saying, well, <laughs> yeah, all that sounds good. I've sought God's help, but I'm still in the pit. Would you notice carefully verse 1? And notice that David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. I think that what he's saying there is that his waiting was not for just a moment in time. That there was a period of waiting in terms of length of time that perhaps took place. And he had to sort of deal with that problem for a while. He had to sort of remain in that problem for a while as God began to get his attention and help him begin to seek the Lord with all his heart. And I'm wondering if some of us are not in a situation which God wants to teach us to wait patiently on the Lord and to seek after Him. Why? Because David says in waiting on Him, he waited long enough and he saw that God did indeed lift him up out of that. He did put his feet on a solid ground. He did realize that there's a reason to celebrate the grace of God. There's a reason to celebrate the renewing sense of hope that God can bring in our lives in which we get into those deep, dark pits. God is able to lift us out of the miry clay and set our feet upon a rock. The rock is Christ, my friend. Christ never changes. Christ's promises are never broken. And Christ's atoning blood always avails for us. It is Christ that we find our true and sense of security and being able to withstand whatever is going on around us. It is in the darkness of the pits of our lives, my friend, that we are called upon to flee to Christ and find Him to be that firm and solid foundation 
and to have our feet squarely placed and planted on the solid ground of all that Christ is to us in the gospel. Where is your heart this morning? Have you gotten to the point where David finally got to? Verse 3. He probably was singing the blues for a long time. He was probably singing songs of all of his woes, of his hopelessness and perhaps despair. Maybe he had stopped singing. <laughs> that often happens when we're depressed or filled with guilt. Notice verse 3. Put a new song in my mouth. A new song. A song of praise to my God. Not a song that speaks of something that happened a long, long time ago, but a song that's talking about something that God has done in my heart in a fresh way, in a real way. And that song means I'm going to sing because I am celebrating the grace that God is showing me right now. What He's recently given to me in my heart and life. I'm reminded of the hymn writer Charles Gabriel who penned the words to a fairly familiar gospel song a number of years ago. In loving kindness, Jesus came, my soul in mercy to reclaim. And from the depths of sin and shame, through grace He lifted me. From my clay, He lifted me. With tender hand, he lifted me from shades of night to plains of light. Oh, praise his name. He lifted me. It's not I climbed out of the pit. He lifted me. He lifted me. He didn't wait till I was all cleaned off, my friend. He didn't wait till I had my act together. He lifted me because of the greatness of his love and grace and mercy. I want you to also notice this morning the reflections of a heart, number two. Reflections of a heart that's looking up to God. My friend, if you've ever known the grace of God lifting you up, hopefully you'll have eyes to see God in a new way. Some people, when they go through situations that are, I hate to use this, it's a terrible pun, a pitiful experience. Pit, pitiful. If you're in a pit and it's in a bad situation, oftentimes you, begin to, you can possibly begin to look at God and say, God must be like this because he let this awful thing happen in my life. But I want you to see that David had a heart that was softened by the grace that God showed to him. He saw and experienced the unmerited favor that God had revealed to him in the midst of his lifting him up. And notice he now can see outlines of God's grace he had never seen before. And look at verse 5. What a wonderful expression of his reflection of a heart that now is looking to God. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Unfortunately, when we're oftentimes in the pit of despair or the pit of shame and the pit of self-pity, we oftentimes get very focused on ourselves. We're focused on all of our woes, we focus on all our problems, we focus on all of the difficulties that we're stuck in, 
and the magnitude of how bad they are and how long they've gone on. But notice, as David had waited upon the Lord and he graciously saw God lifting him up, notice how his, his awareness now is he's aware of God. He's, he's become aware of how God has never lost sight of him, how God is someone who is concerned for him. And notice that the hard lessons that we learn oftentimes is that in the middle of those difficult experiences and we learn to wait upon the Lord and he responds and shows us grace is that we now start seeing him more clearly than we've seen him before. He notices that God hears his prayers. He begins to reflect on the fact that God knows our struggles. He knows our weaknesses. And by the way, when we're in those pit experiences and we oftentimes are cut off from other people because that's what happens sometimes when we're in those very dark experiences of life notice he's saying we're not cut off from you god we may be cut off from other people we're never cut off from him and so our way is not hidden by god and obviously david takes and expands on his thoughts there in verse 5 he he writes incredibly amazing uh, reflections on psalm 139 he says everywhere i go everything i do everything about me you see me all the time there's nowhere i can be and you won't know where i am So David is now very much aware that God is intimately acquainted with all of his ways. He is just amazed by that. I think he's coming to know God in a more deep and profound way. And he realizes no pit is so deep that God loses track of any of us. God is with us in our muddy messes. And things are not hopeless when we're feeling helpless. God is with us. His thoughts are toward us. I wonder, does that, how does that impact you if that's true? If you really believe that, how does that impact your life? Well, David, in reflecting upon the grace that God has shown him and realizing how God's thoughts are toward him and all the amazing things that God has done for him, he then begins in verses 6 to 12, he sort of reflects on the fact of, he reflects on God's promise and God's provision. He begins to think through in those verses about how he came to understand that God was not concerned with all of these outward formalities and that he just has to go through all the rituals and and bring all the right offerings and just go through the motions. He realizes going through the motions is not what it's all about with God. He began to understand what's more important, he said, is that God has impacted my ears. I don't know if you've ever read this verse and you've had an interpretation or you made the assumption or somewhere you read that it actually in some translation says he pierces his ear which is a rather poor translation there although I could see how somebody could reach it but it it literally means to dig out the ears and rather than referring to some sort of indentured servant uh, where he talks about there earlier in in uh, in the Pentateuch if you've served seven years you can have a piercing of your ear that means I'll voluntarily serve you the rest of my life he's not talking about that he's talking about God has cleaned out his ears so that dug him out so they can hear his heart now is listening to what god's word is saying to him and he now is able to hear and understand god's word and he's now saying lord i want your word to not only be something that i just do in a perfunctory way which is maybe what he was doing before i was going through all the motions going through worship like i'm supposed to and taking bringing sacrifices and all this stuff he says now lord i'm hearing your word and now that word is starting to get on my heart 
And my desire is to no longer just go through the motions. I have a heart that says, I desire to show you reverence and fear, and I really want to obey you. I want to do your will. You ever have, have that in your heart? Where your heart is just sort of bubbling up with, Lord, I just want to give you myself and I'll serve you. And then about a half an hour later, <laughs> you get a phone call, and it just sort of throws your day into a tizzy, and next thing you know, you're stomping out the door, and you slam the door behind you, and you're mad as a bee in a bonnet. Can you identify with that? And see, I think this is why this text is so important for us to reflect on just a little longer here, is to stay with this text long enough, because Jesus is right here in these pages. The writer of Hebrews reflected on the fact that in this text where David says in verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. I'm sure David did delight to do the will of God at certain moments, just like we do at certain moments. But boy, did he fall short. He didn't do it what he aspired to do, but my friend, there is a greater David here that's alluded to. There is Jesus Christ in these pages because Jesus said in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And the writer of Hebrews reads these verses of 6 and 7 in Psalm 40, and he writes in chapter 10, as we read earlier today, in, in chapter 10 of Hebrews, he says, look here, this is the argument of what we've been saying is that Jesus came and he did perfectly the will of God. He kept all of the will of God. He had the heart, the, his heart indeed was determined and wanted to do the will of God, and he did it. And so our hope, my friend, as people who long to do it, and we can't and we don't, is that Christ did it for us. It is Christ's perfect obedience that is our hope, the hope of the second covenant, my friend, and that's what we're celebrating today. The new covenant is that God has provided to us a perfect sacrifice, one who is absolutely righteous. Christ did everything the law required to do, and therefore, Jeremiah 31, we read this. This is the new covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and upon their mind I will write them. And along with the idea of writing the law upon our hearts means what? There's the promise of forgiveness. Yes, we'll maybe obey better we have because of the Holy Spirit's help, but we still fall short. And that's why, my friend, because of the gospel, the complete obedience of Jesus Christ and His sinless life, His atoning death on the cross, His resurrection from the grave, is that we have now the blessings of the new covenant. And we have a new heart, can now enjoy God and enjoy the fact that we are forgiven and we have a standing before Him in Christ. I wonder if you can identify with that heart struggle that David had, or even Paul had, where Paul says, the things that I don't want to do, I do those things. And the things that I don't want to do, that's what I do. I'm, I'm all, I need help, he says. And the help is in Jesus Christ, who is all that we need, and celebrating the fact that God has provided to us the Son of David. And notice verse 10. He says, I have not hidden your righteousness from the heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness. I've spoken of your salvation. He begins to tell other people about the greatness of what God has done, not in greatness of himself and his performance. He's celebrating, indeed, the gospel. Look at verse 9 of chapter 40, Psalm 40. I've proclaimed glad tidings. Glad tidings is really the Old Testament version of gospel. Good news. 
I'm declaring the good news. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves, my friend, every day. The gospel is not what I do or you do. It's what God has done in Christ. And that is where we find hope. That is what we can celebrate. That is what we can brag on. That's, the, that's where we find joy in life. It's in the gospel. It's not in us and what we do or don't do. Well, let me bring one more thing to your attention here, and that's our third point, verses uh, 11 and following. We notice the ongoing need to be lifted up to God. An ongoing need. It's interesting to read this text because it starts off on this wonderful elevated point of rejoicing, the first four verses or so in the psalm. And then he sort of reflects on what he's understanding now that's different in his life. And then he goes back to this theme at the latter part of this psalm in which he now is struggling again. Just because he's seen God help him in a moment of crisis doesn't mean he now is immune from another crisis or difficulty or pit experience. Notice verse 17 of chapter 40. Since I am afflicted and needy. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Just because he had found delight in celebrating God's goodness doesn't mean he's now immune from any further struggles from within or from without. And sometimes we think that. Sometimes we think, well, God, you brought me through this. Now you're going to help me put me on a path where I don't have any more of those problems. (laughs) That's not the case at all. Why? Because God oftentimes will use these humbling, lowering of ourselves into difficulties and problems and situations we find ourselves in is for the purpose of what? Of keeping us constantly relying upon Him. Of drawing us closer to Him. Because what happens when the sun shines and the train's going down the tracks and everybody's uh, fine and it's an easy little quiet scenic trip? We just go our merry way and forget about God. Could it not be that one of the reasons for the times that we face in those scary, dark tunnels and traveling through life we go through is that God wants to have our hearts attuned to Him. And He wants us looking to Him, learning the truths in our minds as we now take His truth and try to apply it to the situation we find ourselves. In the version of a Bible I have at home, I had one column of Psalm 40 went down like this and it stopped here. And then I had another column of of uh, chapter 40 over here and it was finishing off and very interesting how these two things lined up beside each other as David affirms a truth and now he's going to live out that truth look at this if you look at verse 5 the phrase there he says and your thoughts he says I'm amazed many are your wonders that you have done and your thoughts toward us he begins to think about all the thoughts that God has toward him and the people of God then look at verse 17 since I'm afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? I've affirmed that, God, you have thoughts toward me. Be mindful of me. (laughs) What's he doing? I think he's taking the truth and he's rehearsing it in his head. He's now sort of preaching to himself. He's saying, Lord, I know you think about me, but think about me. I'm praying that you'll think about me. He's turning to God and he's taking the things that he's learned, and he's now starting to try to apply them in the situation where he is. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul did? Apostle Paul 
2 Corinthians chapter 12, given a tremendous privilege. He was taken up in the third heaven. He actually got to go to the heaven and see sights and hear things he's not allowed to talk about. But in order not to become boastful and arrogant, God gives him what? A thorn in his side, a stake. Not a thorn like a rose thorn, but a stake that is, that is in his side, a messenger from Satan. Why? To humble him and to keep him relying upon 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, the grace, the sufficient grace of Christ. And so I would suggest to you and to me that we need to lift our hearts to God, looking to Him wherever you are, whatever pit of you're in, whatever circumstance you're facing in your life, realize that God has you there for a reason. His thoughts are toward you, and He wants you to now begin what? Waiting upon Him. So that you can get to the point where you can say, my joy is not based on what's happening around me with my circumstances, but my joy is based on God, who has dealt with me graciously through Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse 16. Can you make this your affirmation together? Let all who seek the Lord rejoice and be glad in what? In your performance, in your circumstances, in, the, in your level of your bank, in your investments, in your job situation, in your, where you live or the people around you treating you so nicely? No, that we be glad in Him. Let those who love His salvation continually say, The Lord be magnified. If you're in a pit, my friend, and you make that your statement, Lord, you be magnified. Guess what? You're going to find yourself finding your way out of that pit eventually. Because your goal now is that it's not about yourself. You're now beginning to become more aware of God and Him being magnified. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank You that You are the one who lifts us up. Thank you, Father, for your heart of compassion that reaches down into the pits that we find ourselves in. And you extend to us the hands of love and mercy. And Lord, we thank you that you lift us up even with all the muck and mire all over us. Thank you, Lord, for lifting us up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that there is hope for all of us no matter where we are, no matter how deep the pit we might find ourselves in, that the gospel reminds us that you, the gracious God, the God whose love can never be matched or fathomed or measured, is the God who will reach deep, deep down into that pit and lift us up in the gospel. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the God, you as God, took upon yourself our sin. We thank you for your perfect obedience. Thank you that you never did give in to sin as we do so often. Thank you, Lord, that we have hope. We have reasons to rejoice, and they're not about us. It's not about us being better people, morally upright people. It's all about you being faithful, gracious, and merciful, and keeping your promises in the gospel toward those who will humbly repent and trust you, and run to you, and flee to you, and go into your arms in their sin, in their struggles, and in their shame. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to celebrate your grace now in the Lord's Supper that follows. In Christ's name, amen.
please stand as we sing hymn number 545, He Lived <laughs> Matthew 26, we read that as the disciples were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is to be shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. If you just keep reading in the text, just a few uh, verses later, 
Uh, Jesus predicts that all of them will fall away because of me that night. And then Peter says, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And what does Jesus say to that? Truly I say to you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. What's he saying? He's saying you can't be confident in yourself. There's no confidence in you being a person. We all have the ideals and desires to do the things that we know we want to do, but we fall short. And that's why we celebrate Christ. He never failed. He did it all. His righteousness was clearly that which he alone has earned and has possession of. And we are those who lack that. We come to Christ and we gain it through faith on the basis of all that Christ has done. So that we're celebrating Christ, his broken body, symbolized by the broken bread, and symbolized the, the sealing of the covenant of full forgiveness uh, spoken of in Jeremiah 31 with the cup reminding of his shed blood for us. This time we want to ask Mark if he will lead us in prayer, giving thanks for the cup, uh, for the bread, sorry. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for Jesus Christ, that he has lifted us up out of the pit, that he loves us so much that he would do that. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.